we're going to turn through the Old Testament into 1 Kings. We're going to land in chapter 6 and in chapter 7. Our initial reading will only be from chapter 6, but we can turn the page later to chapter 7 as we get into that portion of the message in that reading. But as you're finding that, let me tell you the situation that occurred to me last week. Because I, last week, got just a little bit critical of my employer, the local school corporation, not God, the local school corporation. But let me explain the whole situation. Because last Monday was President's Day. It's an observed holiday by the government, by the school system, on the school calendar. It is a lovely three-day weekend that I look forward to, and I enjoyed it immensely. So it was a President's Day. It was a holiday, and it was great. But let me emphasize, according to the school calendar, it is a holiday, meaning that Nothing can override it. It's a set-aside holiday where it cannot be a snow makeup day. You got it? Okay, well, there's another holiday coming up. Not this month, but next month in April. It is Good Friday. Good Friday is another holiday, as it rightly should be, because it is the most important day of Christianity, the day that Jesus died on the cross for our sins the most important day for us as Christians. As it should be, it is a holiday, okay? But according to the school calendar, it's not just a holiday. It's called a slash, meaning it's a holiday slash snow makeup day. So guess what happened last Thursday? In our school corporation, there was no school. Now it started off a little bit of ice Wednesday night, going into Thursday morning, a little slick, little treacherous roads led into a two-hour delay on, on Thursday morning, which is fine and good, which means we're still going to school. And I can accept that. Okay, I'm all right with that. A little bit later, they deemed the roads were still very hazardous, so they canceled school for the day, which then resulted in another makeup day that has to happen. The very next makeup day, according to the school calendar, is Good Friday. So now Good Friday is no longer the holiday that it should be. So help me make sense of this. How is Good Friday, how is Washington's birthday or President's Day, whatever you want to call that day, early this week on Monday, how is President's Day more important than Good Friday? It is not more important. So yeah, I was a little bit critical this week, voicing that displeasure to whoever be willing to listen. I think maybe it fall on deaf ears. I don't know. But to me, it was a matter of priorities. It's a matter of principle that Good Friday is an extremely important day for all of us as Christians and believers. And Good Friday is and always should be more important than President's Day and should not be a slash. It should be a holiday that we all look forward to celebrating what the Lord did for us. Again, to me, maybe not to everybody, especially maybe in the school system or in the world today, but to me, it is a matter of priorities. So having it happen last week, today we have a message talking about and focusing upon priorities. And simply stated, our priority should be Jesus and nothing else. That should be first. That should be foremost. 
Our priority should be Jesus. Our priority should be much more Jesus than our spouse and our children, our work and our career, any hobbies and sports. It should be more than shopping and money. Now, perhaps I recognize maybe you've heard a message such as this before, that Jesus should be first, the priority in life. But is he? Is Jesus first? Is he truly your priority? The text we read from today, as we now go into 1 Kings chapter 6 and a little bit later in chapter 7, is about Solomon, who is a very, very wise man, arguably the wisest man to ever live. But perhaps a man that did not have God as his priority. As you will see, as we'll go through the text today, I'll be suggesting that his priorities got out of whack a little bit when he began to build the temple and the palace as maybe indication of how he had the wrong priority in mind. We'll turn first to 1 Kings chapter 6. Stand with me if you're able to as you read the first portion of chapter 6. Only 10 verses to consider this morning of the sixth chapter. A little bit later, maybe a little more chapter 6. But to get our flavor of what's happening with Solomon, as he builds a temple, we first look in chapter 6, and we read the first 10 verses, and it says this. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he, Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the house the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. In verse 6, it tells us the lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. But around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by the stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built and finished it, and made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for the reading today, Lord, as we get into the message you're talking about and reminding us of our priorities. Lord, let's recognize today that you are the first and foremost priority for all of us. Or today, there may have been some things happen. Happens to all of us at times, Lord. Where priorities may have been changed a little bit. Maybe some things more importance for our lives in the last few weeks or months or in the last year. So today, Lord, we invite your spirit now to lead us to guide and direct us. 
So today when we leave, we certainly have you again first and a priority in our lives. Lead now, Lord. Anoint our time together. Let your spirit fill us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you're going to have several numbers being thrown at you today, so beware of that. And note then from the beginning of the reading we have here in chapter 6, it tells us the dimensions of the temple. But notice it is stated in cubits. Go back to the beginning in verse 2 of the 6th chapter. Again, Solomon built the house for the Lord. The temple is being built. It is 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. We're not going to be too concerned about the height necessarily of the temple and later the palace. We're going to find out later it's actually the same height. So we're going to concentrate more on the width and the length. Also notice in verse 3 it says there was a vestibule. It was 20 cubits long equal to the front of the house of being 10 cubits. Okay? It's cubits. Now I have a tape measure and actually this is my favorite tape measure. 30 feet in length. I build a lot of different things. Been doing some remodeling at our house lately. And I'm looking at my tape measure. And here is one foot. 12 inches. One foot. Got it? Where is the cubit on here? I don't see anything about cubit. I see half inch. I see two inches. I mean, I could go up here. Here's 16 inches, which is the equivalent of a stud in the house. 16 inches apart, right? Where is the cubit? Someone want to show me with a cubit? Dan, you want to show me the cubit? There's not a cubit on there? Right, I probably have about eight different tape measures at my house. I brought one of the eight. I don't know why I've got eight. I just have a lot of tape measures. Every tape measure I got, there's not a cubit on it. But here's the thing. A cubit is roughly 18 inches. So right to there. Roughly 18 inches is a cubit. So having that knowledge, we can take now what we find in this chapter about how it tells the cubits the width and length of the house and restate it. I've moved now to the New Living Translation, and this tells us this then. We can understand it. The temple the King Solomon built for the Lord, 90 feet long. Now we understand it, don't we? 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. But don't be worried about the height. It's 90 by 30, basically. Okay? Which is a nice size temple, right? That's 2,700 square feet, if I do my math right. Right, Kayla? All right. So there is the dimensions then of the temple. But for comparison purposes, how do you think the size of our church compares to the temple? You know the width of the church? Anybody know the width of the church? It's roughly, it's, a, it's not quite 50 feet wide, but it's about 45 to 48 feet wide is the width of the church. That's the width. That's to your left and to your right. The length of the church, you know the length of the church? Been too long still? It's not quite 100, but getting close to 100 feet, which to me is a little surprising. I didn't think our church was that big. So it's not quite 50 by 100, but it's getting pretty close. Yeah. So... That would be the equivalent of how many square feet? 50 times 100, 5,000. Thank you, Kayla. So the temple is how many square feet? How many square feet? 2,700. Thank you, Roger. 90 by 30. The church is how many square feet? 
5,000, roughly 5,500. We're blessed. We're blessed to have the church we have. I hadn't really thought about it during the week of preparing the message of how much the church maybe was larger than the temple. But we're blessed to have the church we have. But we go back yet to seeing how this maybe is a problem for Solomon. Because as we understand what's happening, there is a situation that we need to be fully aware of. We go back now to the dimensions of the palace. So we've got to go to chapter 7. You don't need to stand, but bear with me as we read now chapter 7. Because we understand the temple, not trying to confuse you before we read, the temple was 90 by 30, 2,700 square feet. Got it? I got to consider the palace. Chapter 7. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished the entire house. Okay, verse 2. He built the house of the force of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its breadth, the width of it, 50 cubits, and its height, again, the same, 30 cubits. It was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. It was covered with cedar above the chambers. There were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars, and a canopy in front of them. In verse 7, he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafter. His own house, where he was to dwell, in the other court back of the hall, was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stone, cut according to measure, saws with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. Now, the foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. And above were costly stones, cut according to the measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. There is a lot of reading and a lot of number. But let's concentrate on this. Did you happen to notice the difference between the size of the temple that's mentioned in chapter 6 and now the size of the palace, his residence, that he's going to live in, that he built in chapter 7? Did you notice? Verse 2. He built the house of the force of Lebanon. Its length, here it goes, 100 cubits. The width, 50 cubits. The height, the same as the other. Four rows of cedar pillars, cedar beams on the pillars. We go back again from cubits to English standard, which we understand. The palace of the force of Lebanon, 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, the same height of 45. The palace, this is the place where he's going to live, is 150 feet long. I just said our church is about 100. If you remember, the temple was only 90. 
the width of the place he's going to live is 75 feet. Our church is not quite 50. The temple that he originally built is only 30. Here's what's staggering. The square footage of the place he's going to live is 11,250 square feet. Roger, what was the size of the temple? 2,700. 2,700 for the temple versus over 11,000 for the place he's going to live, the palace. Maybe even more than that, or maybe in, in addition to that, we should note the length of time to build each of them. When part of a reading, because we go now to the end of chapter 6, bear with me now, into chapter 6, it tells the time it took to build the, the, the temple. In chapter 6, verse 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. Verse 38. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts. And according to all the specifications, he was seven years in building the temple. Seven years building the temple, which is quite some time. But how long did he build his house? The extravagant palace. It's in this chapter 7 and verse 1. How many? 13 years. He took seven years to build a smaller temple. He took 13 years, much, almost twice as much as to build the house. Seven years for the house, 13 years for the temple. You say, yeah, I understand that. Okay, the difference in time, but it's much larger. So, yeah, he took longer to build the house and the temple, but it's going to take extra time because the house is bigger than the temple. And that's completely true. The palace is larger than the temple and probably then will take longer to build. But should it have been twice as long to build the palace, his residence, versus the temple? I'm not so sure it should have taken twice as long. Yeah, it's much larger. But why should it have taken twice as long? Unless perhaps he's going to much more extravagant details and luxurious items within the house versus the temple. So I'm not so sure it justified taking twice as many years. And neither does Andrew Knowles, who states this. Solomon builds a, a palace for himself, which is called the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon, because of its fine cedar pillars and beams. The throne hall is larger than the temple and provides an impressive court in which Solomon delivers his famous judgments. It takes 13 years to build this palace, which is perhaps an indication of Solomon's real priorities. I share with you that comment because Noel's observation is about the same as mine. That in regards to the palace versus the temple, he states the time to build is an indication in the Solomon's priorities. As in he gave a lot more attention to the place he's going to stay and live than the temple. Now, just so you know, Noah's comment is just not one particular scholar who may be picking on Solomon like maybe think I am. Because Ian Provis says essentially the same thing, but Ian takes a look at the Hebrew verbs to make sure it actually can connect in the same way that Knowles and I are thinking about how Solomon maybe has his priorities right. 
Ian says this, and he says, Solomon completed, you notice the verbs in parentheses here as we scatter throughout the comment. Solomon completed the temple. He spent seven years building it. But his own house, Solomon spent 13 years building. And he completed the whole of his house. The more obvious point of contrast centers on that verb, N-H-U-C there. Solomon spent much more time building his own house, again called a palace, than he did building God's house. This is not surprising, because the first of his several buildings was much bigger than the temple. The temple had quite a bit of cedar of Lebanon in it. This building, however, his palace, is packed with so many cedars that it is called the palace of the forest of Lebanon. The suggestion is that the king was much more concerned about his palace than about the Lord's temple. As I hear that, as I read the text between chapter 6 and chapter 7, I admire Solomon for building it all, especially building the temple. I admire that. But I begin to also see that maybe Solomon had a problem with his priorities. If we can measure his priorities by the time of length to build each, the temple, and then also the palace. But maybe that's not enough evidence. Maybe we're being too harsh. Maybe we're way, way too critical of Solomon. By simply looking at the length, maybe I'm saying it's too critical of Solomon just based upon his priorities, upon the time to take to build each of them. So before I go on record and say maybe his priorities are out of whack, maybe we need to go further and look again at the dimensions. Because maybe it tells the bigger story. So again, how big is the temple? Well, I don't need to restate it all. You see the temple dimensions are 90 by 30, essentially. And the palace, 150 by 75. And clearly indicating that the palace is much more larger in size than the temple. But you've got to go even further. Yeah, it's bigger, okay. But notice what extravagance that palace has versus the temple. So we go back to chapter 7, we start in verse 3. And notice then this palace, the hall, has a cedar roof. The beams on the pillars, 45, 45 side rooms. Verse 6, he built the hall of pillars, 75 feet by 45. Verse 7, he built the throne room, known as the hall of justice, paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. Verse 8, Carlson talks about how his house was the same workmanship, similar quarters for Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 9, all these buildings were built from huge, huge blocks of high, high-quality stone. Verse 10, huge foundation stones, 15 feet or 12 feet. Notice, if you will, then, that the palace is not only larger, the palace is filled of extravagant, luxurious amenities. The temple's nice, but the palace is considerably so much more. It boasted 11,250 square feet. The temple has a measly 2,700. The palace is full of all the cedar and all the precious stones. Maybe somebody got the priorities wrong. 
Scholar Paul House offers an interesting perspective. He said, inserted between the building and furnishing of the temple, this palace construction story shows that Solomon's secular interests never cease, and these interests cost more than his religious money. The palace takes nearly twice as long to finish. Presumably, it is also larger and more costly. Solomon has built himself an impressive home. The question, is this project self-indulgence or another example of God's blessing? The author does not comment, though readers must wonder if this extravagance is in keeping with Moses' declaration that kings must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold according to what is written in Deuteronomy 17.17. He goes further. He said, at least it is quite possible that he did everything imaginable to show that as Yahweh is a great God, he, Solomon, was a great king. What is displayed here is far more Solomon's riches and honor than his wisdom. Well, with the perspective offered by scholar Paul House, at least a particular observation in my first point today, that with the building of the temple and with the building of the palace, Solomon has demonstrated that his priorities are more in himself than in God. You see that? The way he built the temple. And I admire Solomon for building the temple. His father David wanted to, and David didn't get to, so Solomon did. So the way David built the temple and the way David built the palace, he demonstrates essentially that his priorities are more in himself than God. Now, as you heard that twice now, begin to apply that observation for a moment. Is that the same for you or maybe someone you know? I mean, is it really necessary that Solomon need to have an extravagant house, the palace? I mean, think of your house. Think of your house and how much square feet, square foot, square feet do you have in your house? If I say the word correctly, it's square feet. How many square feet do you have in your house? Now, as I look around, I don't think anybody in here has a house or a palace. 11,250 square feet, if you do raise your hand. No one has it. <laughs> You're working on it. 11,250 feet seems quite excessive. And it's full of extravagance. And I certainly would not want to clean it. And he didn't, by the way. He had people to do it for him. But again, the point is that he has a lot of extra things that maybe he doesn't necessarily need. The size of the palace, extravagant luxurious items throughout. So maybe again, it's an indication his priorities are not what they should be. Years ago, many years ago, John, you and I did a quick little brief study on a study of pastors. Now let me preface this by saying it was a really quick study. Okay. It happened to occur at one of the finer establishments in Evansville called the Donut Factory. And, and we were gorging ourselves on donuts and, and enjoying some fine quality coffee, okay? So as we were talking amongst ourselves about different things, somehow the subject came up of pastors and their salary and different things like that. So, you know, we turned to the best source for that kind of thing, Google. 
which may not always be true, but Google showed us that day that there were certain pastors who, one particular pastor, be nameless, has an annual income, a salary, that exceeds $6 million a year. Another pastor was, we found on our study, was that he was petitioning heavily his congregation for income, for revenue, so he could go out and buy that Learjet. And yet another one that we found on our study was one particular pastor who had a $23,000 toilet in their palace. Now, I have my tape measure where I do some building and some remodeling. So I go out to Menards quite often, and they know me by my first name, okay? But when I go out there, I find toilets. I found last week a toilet for $59 at Menards. And right now, you get 11% off that. So why is it necessary to have a $23,000 toilet? No. It still runs water through it just the same. I mean, the point is, I mean, I'm not trying to be overly critical of Solomon. And I'm not trying to, you know, be critical even of pastors who maybe have a large source of income. And I'm not suggesting then that these pastors that we talked about, really they're nameless, I'm not even telling you they have the priorities out of line, but it does make you wonder. But here's the point rather than trying to make. Our second point of the message. That when we begin to do things to impress others, we tend to focus less on our priorities. We lose focus on our priorities when we begin to try to impress other people. Again, when we do things to impress others, we tend to lose focus on our priorities. We begin to focus on self rather than God. And that's not who we should be. As Christians, as believers, Jesus should always be our priority. And after all, think about it. I mean, he certainly made me and you a priority when he went and died on the cross for us willing. So we look at the text in Solomon in chapter 6, chapter 7, I mean, we find it's really not an overly complicated message. I mean, it's just a message maybe you've heard before to some extent that we need to have our priorities to be right. But it's a message, nonetheless, as things began to occur to me last week, I recognized that maybe we just need this reminder. Because life happens, and things can quickly get out of balance. And before we know it, Jesus is not first anymore. Because so easily and so selfishly begin to focus on other things. It happens to all of us. It seems no one is exempt. It's happened to me. Years ago, I made hunting. One of my biggest priorities. I'm actually ashamed to tell you that, but I did. I mean, hunting a great, a great priority of mine. I mean, I dreamed, in that particular time, I dreamed of being a guide and taking others on hunts. While living in Texas, I would justify going to Mississippi at a deer lease I had, a 3,000-acre deer lease. I would justify going nearly every weekend during the deer season of three to four months and missing Sundays. I would justify that in my mind, in my heart. I recall one particular Sunday where I decided to stay in Texas and went to church. And one of the men of the church asked me where I'd been. And I told him that I'd been on a hunting trip in Texas. 
Well, his expression was all I needed to really receive. I mean, that made me realize how maybe selfish I had been by going on all these hunting trips. But just to be made sure he made his point, he added. I mean, the reaction was enough. His expression was enough, but he added. So you're putting hunting over God? Well, that hurt. So in my mind, I'm processing this, and I quickly replied, well, I take my Bible with me. I can still God worship God from the woods. Which is, I mean, that which is true. I mean, we can worship God anywhere, right? I did have my Bible with me, yes. I mean, so some truth is to that, that we can justify and worship God anywhere. But it made me realize that my priorities had changed. That God had taken a back seat. And that that was wrong. That Jesus should be first. And Jesus should always be first. And I wish you could tell you maybe it's the only time it occurred to me. But yet, as life happens and things that occur, it's not. Sometime later, maybe even earlier, whenever in Mississippi, my boys love to play soccer. When they were younger, we still like soccer to this day. I mean, when the World Cup comes on, don't interrupt me when the World Cup comes on. Because I like to watch World Cup soccer. It's just, to me, it's exciting. And the boys started playing soccer when they were young. And, and they, they still like to play soccer at times. And I became their coach. As we became their coach, I mean, honestly, the teams we were coaching, the teams we have with the kids we were selecting, we had some pretty good teams. We were highly competitive. And we, having teams that were competitive meant we would enter weekend tournaments. But typically, the weekend tournament would be played on a Saturday. And you would enter what's called a round-robin tournament. You have a group that placed you in. And you play everyone in a particular group. And the winner of the group, based upon their wins or most points, would advance to the next round. The next round was on Sunday. It's the same format being used at the World Cup. And it seems to work. Except the next round was on Sunday. One particular team I was coaching then, over with Chase or Tyler at the time, had a young man that come to me and said, Coach, I can't play on Sunday. I said, why not? Is it because my dad's a pastor? We go to church on Sunday. So we made it to the Sunday round. We won our particular grouping. I was looking for this young man, and he didn't come to the game. And honestly, as a coach, he kind of aggravated me because he's a pretty good player. I'm looking for him to come to the game where we can win the next round and maybe be the champions. So it aggravated me. But it shouldn't have, right? It should have aggravated I should have admired the young man and having his priorities right and perhaps even joined him at church if my priority had been right. He made Jesus a priority. I and all of us and we should make Jesus first and make him a priority. See, life begins to happen because life does happen. Sometimes life gets in the way. And when life gets in the way, sometimes Jesus is not first. That's the whole point of the message. I'm not sure if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I mean, because it was a particular Sunday when it was kind of really slick outside. And so but that particular Sunday, I remember everything about that message, but I remember sharing with you that Sheila and I, on the Saturday before the Sunday, had gone out throughout the community. We went to Oakland City, everywhere here. We even went down to Somerville and different places. We passed out the flyers for the benefit that was going to be for Ray 
for her passing and for Nick to receive the, the funds from. So we're going to everywhere pass out these flyers. Well, the church we found in Somerville had a message board outside their church like we do. The only thing we have on there is about our message, I mean our service times. But they changed theirs basically weekly. And the sign said this, Jesus should be the reason you miss everything else on Sunday, which has a lot of truth to it. Jesus should be the reason you miss everything else on a Sunday. And if only I knew that, and I did know that, back when I was coaching or hunting. But it just shows you how so quickly we lose focus. Something else becomes more important. It positions itself as number one. Jesus takes a step backward in our lives. But it tells us, reminds us how Jesus must always be our priority. He must always be our priority. Now, in case you're wondering, none of this means that we cannot or never enjoy or have hobbies or sports or have family fun. Because all that has a time and a place in our lives. They should be kept in balance. All these extracurricular things must be kept in balance. And it should never be our focus. They should never position themselves as first. We should always have Jesus first in our lives. The first thing every morning, we should be ready to thank Jesus for that day, the sacrifice he gave to all of us, and how really we are so blessed. The first thing every morning you should begin to meditate and pray and just thank Jesus for being who he was and for thinking of us on the cross. So why not today then? If somehow our priorities have begun to change and maybe we begin to lose focus, why not today put Jesus first again? Why not put the man, the man God, why not put him first that gave his life for you and for me? Again, Jesus must be our foremost priority. Father, Lord, thank you today for a simple reminder to receive. I recognize, Lord, how it can be painful even to hear these words and how we recognize that sometimes maybe the, Jesus wasn't in a particular moment first in our life. That's what the message essentially reminds us of today. So, Lord, let us today reestablish our priorities. Put you first. We do love you, Lord. And we do thank you so much for the sacrifice you made for us. And today, then, we position ourselves to honor that sacrifice of putting you first in our life. We're thankful. We're blessed. We're so grateful, Lord. We're so thankful that you thought of us that you've only died for each of us. And today, we position you first in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.